Gracious Father, we thank you again for the privilege to gather um, this Lord's Day. Uh, we, we do not take it for granted. And we give you thanks. We also come confessing that we are a needy people. We must have your enabling grace, at least we can, uh, at least we, we wander uh, from your will and from your purpose for our lives. Can do nothing in and of ourselves. We must have you. So we come to confess we still struggle with sin and this side of glory. We still struggle with um, the trappings of this world. And we come as uh, uh, to confess these things and to cry out to you that you would cleanse us where we have sinned against you, that you would um, strengthen us, and that you would grant us capacity to go forward, um, to walk in light and reflect your glory into this world uh, and to be about your business that you have called us to as your children. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Our passage this morning comes out of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9, and we'll be looking at verses 36 through 43. Acts chapter 9, verses 36 through 43. If you'll join me there, beginning in verse 36, it says, Now in Joppa there was a, a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it happened at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciple, uh, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, Do not delay and come to us. So Peter arose and went with them. When he arrived, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas, that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out and dealt down, dealt, and knelt down, and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up, and calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. Now, as we come to this portion of Scripture in, in, in the chapter 9 of the book of Acts, remember, we're um, looking at the development of Peter's ministry as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And now he was settled there as the little rock there in Jerusalem. And now he begins to take up a more personal, one-on-one -on -one at times, uh, evangelistic uh, church-strengthening, disciple-making ministry that runs across the region. Now, he's in Judea here in Lydda, and he's going to Joppa, the coastal town of Joppa. That's where we'll find him. We'll pick him up in these few verses. But along the way, he's ministering to all the churches in that region. And we find him actually, uh, eventually he'll cross the Roman Empire and minister primarily to Jewish communities that have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And remember, 
Peter's going to be the key to really extending the gospel into the Gentile world. So here, when we look at Peter and we, we think of the book of Acts, it, there, it can be divvied up in a number of ways. But one way is taking the first 12 chapters, and often that's been called the Acts of Peter. And then the final chapters from 12 on to verse 28, uh, excuse me, to chapter 28 being called the Acts of Paul. So that's one way to sort of divide the book of Acts. And here in the beginning, Peter is initiating that ministry to the Gentiles. We're going to find him with Cornelius in the very next chapter. So he's being prepared for this. He is the initial figure of the church there in Jerusalem that will really extend the gospel into the Gentile world. Now, we know that Paul will be the appointment apostle missionary that will extend the gospel personally and their own site. Uh, with the Gentile world, but it's, it's Peter here, and we're seeing him in that initial phase as he begins to minister to the Jewish communities in Gentile regions beyond Jerusalem, and he's strengthening the churches there. He's going there, and he's continuing to teach them proper apostolic doctrine. He's going there to doctrinally link them up with the church in Jerusalem. He's left James behind to kind of be point man in the church in Jerusalem, and now he's going around strengthening these churches, doing evangelistic work, and having very personal ministries along the way. And that was a reminder to us. And here, we're going to see him in two very personal ministries. First, uh, his healing there of, of, of Aeneas, and now the resurrection of Dorcas. And in this, we're reminded that this validates his, his ministry as an apostle of Christ, marked out uniquely as an apostle of Christ, an appointment to the Gentiles. So these miraculous works here are validation of who he is as a real spokesman for Christ. And also... Again, being an apostle of Christ, he is one of those men now marked off to be a writer of the New Testament with the Spirit of God. He is one of those men that's going to be uh, filled by the Spirit of God and bore along, if you will, by the Spirit of God to write and pen the New Testament and seal the canon. So the miracle acts here that we see him involved in are also a validation of that, um, of that ministry. He's an apostle of Christ. And so this marks him off as a spokesman for Christ. And here we find him in Lydda, but two men are going to send for him in Joppa, and we're going to find him ministering there in Joppa. But first, I want you to look with me there in verses 36 and 37 and note the selfless disciple. And what I want you to see here in the selfless disciple, which will be Dorcas that we're speaking of, is the appeal of Feminine godliness. The appeal of feminine godliness here from the selfless disciple. Look there with me. Verse 36. Now in Joppa there was a disciple. And her name was Tabitha. And translated, that's translated in Greek to Dorcas. Now, I don't know if Dorcas is a nickname. I would be pushing it to say that. It may be a given name. But, nor, but Dorcas really fits the bill when it comes to Tabitha, when it comes to Dorcas herself. Uh, translated in the Greek, it's, uh, it's a term that really speaks to the word gazelle. And so in many ways, Dorcas was just like a gazelle. And also, when it, when it translates the term gazelle, it speaks brightly uh, to the reality of the big, round, 
bright eyes of a gazelle. And so we think of the swiftness, the beauty, the elegance, and the brightness of the gazelle. It speaks very clearly to the personality of Dorcas as a Christian woman. Her demeanor, her steadiness, her quickness, her elegance, and her brightness. So really, if we think of Dorcas, she was kind of bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, if you will. She was a diligent disciple. And here the text tells us that she was abounding in deeds of kindness and charity. And I want you to link two things together here very quickly. This woman was abounding, so that means literally she was overflowing in deeds of kindness and charity. Kindness is acts of kindness that mark off a true disciple, acts of kindness. And charity is an extension beyond your, uh, your acts of kindness that could flow throughout uh, any uh, avenue of the day um, into particular charity for those in need. So there's acts of kindness that may be uh, lavished upon anyone. Now, again, we're going to see that it primarily flows out of those who are in the church and then extends to her neighbors. That's the natural flow. But the charity is marked off specifically those who are in need. Those who uh, need an extra element of care or attention for whatever the case may be. So that's put here specifically to say that she goes above and beyond, and her eye and her ears and her heart are attentive to those in need beyond her daily activities, her lifestyle of just caring and ministering and doing kind deeds for others, okay? That's what's meant here in the text. So these are overflows of her lifestyle. Uh, It's an overflow of good works that comes from faith. Note here, she's a disciple. So these two go together. Because she is a disciple, she is marked off as one who participates in good works. Uh, Calvin's commentary, roughly uh, coming from Calvin's commentary, we could put it like this. Sound doctrine, being a disciple, being filled with sound doctrine, sound doctrine being the root of all virtue, is learned from the Son of God. So we learn from Scripture sound doctrine, and sound doctrine really teaches us how we ought to live. So here she's a disciple, and so that she has sound doctrine poured into her life, and because she has sound doctrine poured into her life, then her life overflows in good works, and here also is mentioned charity. And she is a picture here of this wonderful swiftness and gracefulness that abounds with how we ought to live. She's full of kindness, care for the poor. She's, deserved, she's devoted to serving others. She is, in a word, selfless. She's quick to meet needs. And if you look down at verse 39, um, when Peter arrives, the women are there to greet him And they are speaking of Dorcas and and telling him, look what she made for me and look what she has done for me and look uh, how she cared for us and how she ministered to us. And they are showing off the clothing that Dorcas made for them. So uh, uh, she made both inner garments and outer garments. That's what's spoken of there. 
when she made tunics and garments, that means the inner garment and also the outer garments. She would do this as, as an act of love and kindness for the ladies there around her in Joppa. And so she's a picture of the Christian life. And she's an example to the church. And primarily, she's a picture of feminine godliness. Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we may walk in them. And that's exactly what uh, we're, we're given here, a picture of a godly woman who is walking in the good works created for her in Christ Jesus. Philippians 1, 9 and 10. And this I pray that you love, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and discernment. Why? So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless into the day of Christ. And here we find this beautiful godly woman doing just that. Approving the things that are excellent. The works that were laid out for us by our God. Proverbs 31.20. And here we get to that virtuous woman, right? She extends her hand to the poor. And that's what Dorcas was known for, being charitable. She extends her hand to the poor and she stretches her hand to the needy. Colossians 1.10. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's what we see here in this beautiful disciple whose lifestyle was one filled with good works, and charity. And so this bright-eyed, bushy-tailed Dorcas, this godly woman, has an impact here in this area. She has, if you will, the right kind of reputation. What does she do? Well, it's a picture of 1 Timothy 2.10. She's a woman making a claim to godliness. And women who make a claim to godliness do this. They adorn themselves with good works. So her practice was that of seeing a need, discerning how she might meet that need, and then acting, acting on the needs. And her life was just one continual lifestyle of doing just that. Seeing a need, discerning how she might meet that need, and then acting upon it. She's concerned for others, and she's eager to serve them. She's selfless now she's not lazy and she's not self-absorbed she's busy she's diligent and she's selfless that's how she's marked off for us here in scripture now that is quite a rebuke to the modern expectations for women is it not in our culture this is quite a stark contrast what we see here is a picture of feminine appeal what we get in our culture is the expectation for young ladies to be obsessed with themselves. Not selfless, but selfish. Be obsessed with yourself. Make demands, and in every readily situation, behave like men. But that's not what we find in Dorcas. And so how were such women developed? Well, again, it's sound doctrine. Sound doctrine has molded and shaped Dorcas to be who she is. Note that, again, it's, the, uh, it's her church family where she is primarily ministering. 
Now, again, it flows out. It comes from God. It comes from sound doctrine. It has its primary base within the body of Christ, particularly those whom she is around as a, 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 a visible body of Christ there in Joppa. But then it also extends out to our neighbors. It extends out to the world. It extends out to those who are needy outside uh, the church family. So it has a ripple effect, but it has a systematic approach. And Dorcas works within that element, within that dynamic. And she works faithfully and she works diligently. And so it brings us to a picture here when we think about a picture of, a, of, the, of the, the appeal of a godly woman. Well, it brings us to Timothy, certainly, but also 1 Peter. What about 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 4? Your adornment must not, excuse me, must not be merely external, braided hair and wearing gold jewelry and putting on dresses. But let it be, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle, quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Now, let me just say this up front. There have been all kinds of legalistic ungodly notions attached to the words in this verse. Okay? Dear ladies, don't be bound by some kind of foolish, ungodly legalism. This is not saying that you can't adorn yourself with some exterior items. It's not saying that at all. Here is an issue of the heart. So it is saying in this text, in this proof text here that I'm I'm bringing to you, um, in First Peter, it is saying it's a heart issue. So don't be obsessed with being noticed by wearing expensive items or expensive clothing. Don't put your heart's desire on those possessions. Don't obsess with them. Don't try to draw undue attention to yourself externally. That's what's being said here. Don't place your heart on external beauty. Is it, is it wrong to have an effeminate appeal that has an exterior element about it? It's not wrong. But your heart is never laid upon drawing attention to yourself and being noticed and taking externals to try to do that. The heart of the matter is this. Let it be in the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. A gentle and quiet spirit that's precious in the sight of God is linked with a busy, bright, vibrant, gracious, elegant beauty of working and serving and ministering in various contexts in a way that honors God and brings great glory to his name. So young ladies, let me say this, if you'll give me a moment, considering the externals, because the culture around us will tell you otherwise. The culture will tell you to draw attention to yourself, to self-aggrandize, to act like men, to want what men want, the scripture says there is great joy in the God-given desires that you have. 
that belong to you because God has given to you. Desires like showing love and compassion in a tender, feminine way. Like nurturing in a tender, feminine way that's unique to your elegance as a woman and a young woman. And like meeting needs that we see here from Dorcas, which is given to you by God and is unique to you as a young woman. So, ladies, just back to the externals for a moment, if you'll indulge me. Here's a really easy way to look at it, young ladies particularly. You go before your, your God. And you stand in front of the mirror. And you say, God, does this honor you? And if it does, you wear it. And you go and you serve the king. You look in the mirror and you say, I want people to know what's most important about me. And sometimes clothing says that in all the wrong ways. So it's something to think about for sure. You go in the mirror and you say, oh, does this honor you? And you go forth. Okay? That's a good, easy way to think about it. That's the best I can do from my position uh, as your pastor and as a brother in Christ and as a male. But notice there in verse 37, this beautiful bright-eyed, bushy-tailed young Dorcas uh, abounding in good deeds. Well, she dies. She fell sick and she died. But they prepared her body in an unusual way here. It says they washed her body and they laid it in an upper room. That's a bit unusual there. We're still in, in first century Palestine and it's hot. And, you know, typically they buried bodies quickly because they would decompose quickly because of the climate. So this is a bit unusual, and I, I don't know exactly what they had in mind here. I know they sent, we know, text tells us that they sent for Peter, okay? It says there um, that they sent for him, but I don't know what they had in mind exactly. Now, maybe they, they certainly knew that uh, he, the, the powers, the miracle-working power uh, attached to the, to the ministry of an apostle of Christ belonged to Peter. They certainly were aware of that. Did they have resurrection in mind? Some say yes. Uh, I, I don't know. I can't be definitive there. They may have just, it may just have been as simple as Peter was close, this woman was dear to them, and they wanted him to come and minister there, uh, particularly that moment because of the anguish, because this woman was so special to their community. Maybe they wanted to do the funeral. I don't know. They prepared her body in a different, in a unique way. So they're waiting for Peter. Um, my thought is that they didn't know and that Peter didn't know until he got there. Certainly he was led by the Spirit. And it's certainly at some point he knows exactly what's uh, intended for him to do and exactly what the miracle uh, is intended for, ultimately to bring glory to God and to uh, continue to promulgate that truth that Jesus Christ is indeed the promised Messiah, and to strengthen the churches even more in the apostolic ministry of Peter. Nonetheless, he's called for. 
Uh, and here's what I want you to see about that, the availability of the apostle there in verses 38 through 41. So look there with me in verse 38. It says, Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, Do not delay and come to us. Now, commentators uh, give different distances between Lydda and and Joppa. They're they're not definitive. Exactly. You'll You'll get some different thoughts from folks. But basically, it's about a day's journey. So for the time for the men to get to Peter, and then for Peter to get back, you're looking at two days. So Dorcas has been dead two days but note this don't miss the obvious Peter makes himself available they come to him and they say do not delay in verse uh, 39 so Peter arose and went to them and when he arrived they brought him in the upper room so he arose and he went with them now Peter was certainly busy. He's ministering to uh, established churches. Again, he, he could possibly be following uh, uh, Peter, or excuse me, possibly be following Philip up the coastline there. Again, uh, a lot is uh, a little bit inland, but he's taken that same route. But we know this churches have been established in these areas, and so he's on this ministry endeavor. He's, he's, he himself has seen a need, and now he's responding to it. And so here he's strengthening these churches. He's, he's doing the work of an evangelist. He's working his way through these churches. So he's a busy guy. And then these men show up. And they urge him to come with them back to Joppa. Now again, this is an uh, unglamorous, kind of out-of-the-way spot. But he could, he, he could list off what he needs to do. But they come, and he responds. He makes himself available. Now, it's a very basic thing, but sometimes that is extremely hard for us to find a way to do in terms of ministry. We can come up with oodles of reasons to not make ourselves available. But there's a simple act here. He just simply makes himself available. Sometimes you can be very busy. You can be involved in serious ministry, but there has to be an element to our Christian life that we can pick up and move to meet a need, to make ourselves available to ministry. And that's what we see him doing here. He was busy. He was working. But now they come to him. It's an urgent need. Again, it's an out-of-the-way kind of place. It's off the beaten path for what he has been actively doing. But he responds. So this is an available apostle here. He gets up and he goes. He made himself available. All right? And really, when you think about it, that's all we have to offer is our availability. So that's what I want you to note here. Uh, I I didn't come up with it, but it's a pretty um, memorable phrase, and it's uh, effective in its communication. Our only ability is availability. God must work in our ministries for it to be for them to be effectual, 
for them to have power, for them to bring honor and glory to God. We can't do that in and of our own selves. We don't have the strength, the capacity, the wisdom to minister effectively in and of our own strength. That must come from God. But what we do have is an opportunity and a responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ, to make ourselves available. We'll be accountable for that. If you're faithful in your ministry endeavors, that you believe God is calling to you to the best of your ability, as you, as you assess your circumstances and God's providential leading of your life, and as you assess God's call uh, and the indwelling work of the Spirit in your lives, as you try to assess those things, in the best, to the best of your ability, and know what God intends for you to do at a given time, your responsibility is faithfulness to your God. And then here I'm going to also say to you to making yourself available. Those are linked. Be faithful and be available. The power must come from God. But we have a responsibility here. And so we can take our cues from Peter. He did just that. Although he's busy, he made himself available. So here's some thoughts concerning Peter's response that would apply to us. Some simple thoughts in terms of what God is calling you to do. As we're praying, as you're praying for God to direct you specifically to what he would have you to do. How would have you to minister in your particular context at this particular time? Well, be ready. Be ready when he calls. And if something hinders you, if there's something that's hindering you, if you have life built up, if you have stuff in the way, here's a real simple encouragement for you. Remove them. Get them out of the way. If you have plans, if you have circumstances, if you have issues that are hindering you, from what you believe God is calling you to do, if you just can't get to it, there's stuff in the way, remove it. Remove it. So this is an element of Christian prioritizing, is what we see here. He made himself available. So prioritize your life in that manner, in like manner. Check your priorities. And be sensitive to ministry opportunities. So a real easy one, you know, don't look for the most glamorous. You got to check your ego. This is not about us. This is about uh, what God intends to do in our lives to bring him most glory. And sometimes it may not be what seems the most glamorous. It may not be the easiest. So check these things. And be sensitive to the opportunities. Submit your will to the indwelling spirit. And be faithful. Make yourself available and be faithful and trust God for the work. Now let's look at verse 39 here. As we pick up with Peter again as he shows up there in Joppa. And so he rose and he went with them and he arrived there and they brought him to the upper room. And again, all the widows were there, and they were standing beside him. And they were weeping, and they were showing all the tunics and all the garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with him. So they were kind of, uh, it was almost like a display. 
this. But look what she did for us. Look how she cared for us. Look how she ministered to us. Look at the heart of this woman. So they're kind of trying to find a way to tangibly show Peter what Dorcas was like. So they're describing Dorcas to him. They're describing the attributes and the appeal of, a, of, the, of the femininity of a godly woman here to Peter. And so he can get the tangible aspect of what this meant, woman meant to them. And certainly, at some point, the Spirit of God is making it very clear to Peter that a miraculous work is to take place in this area. He is to be the instrument through which God will raise Dorcas from the dead. And so they're showing all these things to him. And then we find in verse 40, Peter sends them all away. So I'm sure this was uh, uh, heartwarming and joyous to some degree, and there were lots of smiles in the room, and they were, and they were you know, the, the kind of uh, uh, conversations that were uh, tend towards memories. And there was this appreciation for God's work in Dorcas's life among them. And so this was a, a sweet, bittersweet sort of conversation. And then you see the servants set in in verse 40, and he just sends them out. Sends them all away, and all of a sudden, the hush of holiness rests upon the room because something supernatural only God can bring about and reverent is going to take place. And He sends them away. And you can just sort of feel the heaviness of the air where holiness starts to set in. Reverence and fear starts to set in the fear of God, the healthy reverence of God. Kind of the maybe the, the you know the, the skin starts to kind of bubble up there, and the hairs kind of rise up on the back of the neck, and they just ease out. Something's about to take place, and then note Peter. What does he do next? Well, he prays. Now, that's a marker here, again, setting Peter off as being a vessel of God and not trying to impose himself as having some kind of a power in and of himself. So he knows what's going to happen now. He sent them out of the room. He knows what's going to transpire. He knows he's the vessel. Now, that can be a lot of ego that could rise up in that. What does he do? Did he impose upon God? Nobody's there. This is beautiful. Don't miss this. Nobody's in the room but Peter and God Almighty and the dead body of Dorcas. And he knows he's gonna, she's going to be raised from the dead. And he prays. Amen? Somebody? He prays. Do not... Dear brother and sister, do not presume upon your God. Do not. He prays. And we don't know what he prays exactly in terms of what words he spoke. That's not given to us, but I would love to know. But I guarantee you this. It was solemn and it was humbling. But he prays. And then he says, 
Tabitha, arise. And that's very reminiscent of what Jesus spoke in Mark chapter 5, verse 41, uh, when he said Talitha, which means little girl. Kum, Talitha kum, little girl, arise. And so Peter speaks very similar in what he says to mark himself off as one who is pointing to Christ in this miracle. So again, he's removing himself from anything that has to do with the miracle power. He's a mere vessel. And so he speaks as his, uh, as his king has spoken prior when Jesus resurrected the little girl from the dead. He speaks very uh, similar words here. He's saying in the last arise or, or get up is the very same language. And so he's pointing to Christ in this miracle. He's not operating in and of his own strength. He's operating in God's power. And that's kind of marked off intentionally by what he says. And so for us, here's an easy way to kind of hold on to that as we think about all our ministry as it spills out in life and our responsibility and opportunity and accountability before God. It works like this. Our availability and God's power. That's how you minister. You make yourself available. That's really all you have. And then you trust in God's power to use you for his glory. Our availability, his power. That's what we see uh, in this circumstance with Peter as he's a vessel uh, used by God to bring Dorcas back to life, to raise her from the dead. Ephesians 3, 7 uh, Paul puts it like this concerning his, his ministry. Paul says this, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. And that stands true for all of us. That stands true for Peter in this very unique circumstance here as an apostle of Christ who is used to work miracle power, validating him and pointing to the reality of Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah. But it extends out. This extends out. The principle extends out to all Christians everywhere and all generations. All of us have this accountability to our availability before God and then resting in his power to use us as he pleases for his glory. So as Paul understands that he was marked off for his ministry and equipped and gifted by the power of God that's working in us, the same is true for all disciples everywhere. We are marked off as ministers according to the power of God that is working within us. And so we see there in verse 41 that as he calls to her, Tabitha, arise, she wakes up. She opens her eyes and she sits up. And there in verse 41 it says, he gave her his hand, and he raised her up. And then he calls in the saints and the widows, and he presents her alive. And what did they do? Well, what else could they do? They marveled and rejoiced at this miracle. But then I want you to see the fruitful Hebrew, lastly. The fruitful Hebrew, there in verses 42 and 43. And unsurprisingly, 
Verse 42 tells us, it became known all over Joppa. All you think, really. So God raises this woman from the dead. It's been dead two days, and people hear about it. Word gets out. Shocker. It's all over the place. And it's a spark. It's a spark to what? It becomes known all over Joppa, and then many believe in the Lord. Now, the miracle here, note this, the miracle was another conforming, uh, excuse me, confirming sign uh, proving to the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. That's the point of the miracle. This is another sign, another apostolic sign pointing to the entire planet. All who will read this text in every generation and every corner on the earth until Christ returns will see this and understand this is marked off here as a sign in the apostolic ministry of Peter that screams to the entire world the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. He is the promised Messiah. And right there in that context, in verse 42, Scripture tells us that many, many believed in the Lord. So Peter comes to this unglamorous ministry context, and the gospel explodes right there in Joppa. You make yourself available to where you believe God is calling, to, to the best, calling you to, to the best of your ability, and you trust God for the work. So God determines the effectiveness of the ministry, right? But be available. Trust the Lord and be faithful. God alone has the power to multiply your ministry. I mean, we could preach till our tongues cleave to the tops of our mouths and we drop over from exhaustion and not a soul be saved. Least God Almighty does the work. Amen. So be faithful and be available. And trust God to multiply the ministry. You can't do that. You don't have capacity to do that. And if you're like me, if you start to even think that, you know, yeah, you know, maybe that wasn't too bad, then you're in trouble. Let this humble you and remind you and encourage you. God must do the work. You be faithful and trust Him. To multiply the ministry. Second Corinthians twelve nine says this, and this is Christ speaking, particularly into Paul's ministry here. And he says, "My that 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 being Christ, my grace is sufficient to you. For power is perfected in weakness. When we are weak, Christ is strong within us. So let me use this as an encouragement here." And we're trying to take Peter's cue. And we're trying to be faithful. And we're trying to make ourselves available. And, and the best of our knowledge and our circumstances, seek uh, the ministries that God is calling us to. And trusting him to use us, even us. Even the likes of us. To do his work for his glorious name. When it gets hard, when you're praying and it feels like, you know, it's not even barely reaching the ceiling. It's just not getting anywhere. And you don't understand. It feels like, you feel like you're, you're waiting. There's uncertainty. There's doubt. The path continues to come up with uh, seemingly barrier after barrier. And it's hard path. When it's difficult, 
and there's uncertainty, there's fear, there's doubt. Understand, all of this is part of building you and strengthening you for what God is calling you to do. So remain faithful in those endeavors. Your availability is what's essential from your limited perspective. Your availability. Trust in the Lord. Stay the course. Make yourself available and be faithful to the best you can before God. Leaning on His strength to give you that capacity. And then minister like Dorcas ministered. Minister (laughs) with all you have until you die. If it's a hard path, you're being strengthened. Christ is strong in us when we are weak. We're not going to mold ourselves into some uh, ministering dynamo. That work belongs to God. You just be available and trust Him. Stay the, stay the course. Stay the course. When it seems overbearing, hold on to that beautiful scriptural reality that He is strengthening you and refining you for His work that He intends for you. And lastly here, I want you to note an important element about Peter's ministry that again ripples out to all disciples. It says there in verse 43 that he stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. And when it says many days, that could be a little misleading because he sets up his ministry here. And why not? If you, know, if you show up and then God uses you uh, as a vessel to raise a woman from the dead, you might start thinking, hey, this is a good ministry spot. Maybe <laughs> I'll start here. So he just kind of pulls up, change gears, flexible, Available, flexible. See, it's changed gears. Okay, Lord. This is now, this, this is now my ministry station. So, he, so he's going to stay there a while. And he stays with this guy who's a tanner. Now that's tanning animal hides. This is what we're talking about back in context there. So it's a guy that's tanning animal hides. Now the problem is his name's Simon. Problem is, Simon is unclean because of his work. Now, unclean before God? Certainly not. God's, uh, the Mosaic law says now a, a human body is unclean. There's certain restrictions that were laid out in the Mosaic law. Now, the Pharisees, the Pharisees kind of were pretty good at adding other little laws onto the Mosaic law. This is another addition here. So this is a legalistic addition added on to the Mosaic law. So you know, the, the, thought, the thought I'm assuming was, well, since a human body is unclean, then you know the body of animals must be unclean too. Because we're all into works righteousness. So if we can find more hoops to jump through and kind of superficially perform more acts of righteousness, then we're just going to add them in. Now, the problem with that, they went so far as to say to women, if your husband is a tanner, if he takes up the job of a tanner, you can divorce him because it's such a hideous job and occupation. This unclean man that works as a tanner. So you can see the hypocrisy in it. But Peter grew up in this, right? Peter grew up in all of this. So if you grow up in it, the roots start to sink deep. And so his legalism was pretty deep at times, was it not? 
But boy, we see he's turning the curve here, isn't he? God's doing a work in us how this for all of us. God does a work in us. He'll bring us out of those legalistic elements. He's bringing him out of hypocrisy here. The self-righteousness of seeing oneself as so much better than someone else because of some work-related identity or some ethnic identity. He's actually now moving towards the Gentile world, which he had disgust and disdain for because they were mere Gentiles, nowhere near his status as a Jewish man. He's already moved into Samaria, those hated, awful, half-breed Samaritans, and began to minister there. And so do you see God working in his life? And now of all places in Joppa, where he's going to set up headquarters, God brings him to the tanner's house. So this guy's unclean, according to the additions to the Mosaic Law, which... Peter was being graciously worked out of by his God here. So this is purposeful, and it's important for us. Why? Because this liberalism and legalism and hypocrisy and hanging on to external religious rituals can sometimes trip us up also, right? We have the same sort of problems. Just a different dynamic, a different context. We have the same issues. We can get we get bound by legalism, and legalism will just kill a church. We can get bound by hypocrisy, and hypocrisy can just can just suck the life out of a church. So again, see what's going on in Peter's life, and let's learn from it, and let's. Pray together that the same would be true of us, that God will be preparing us as he's preparing Peter here to accept the Gentiles on equal ground, on equal footing with him as a Jewish man. So how would we, when we think about applying it to our lives, how could we maybe put this in a nutshell? Well, I don't know if I can do it all justice here, but let's start with this. How about we uh, uh, assess ourselves and come before God and say, God, remove our prejudice. Just remove it, whatever that may be. And that could, that could be put in a number of categories. We could have prejudice over, uh, against folks for all kinds of things. But if we just try to think about that as a hard issue, God, just remove our prejudice. Because that's what's happening to Peter here. He's hanging out with Simon now. That's God, in a very practical way, removing his prejudice. Isn't that great? That's sweet. And he's, this is going to be his man, be his guy, for a number of years. Right there. He's just living with it. Mm -hmm. that'll do it so God remove our prejudice and sometimes this can be slow sometimes this can be painful sometimes it can be agonizing but it's a need that we all have to some degree so whatever our ministry prejudice might be that could hinder us from ministering faithfully in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ we want that stuff removed whether it's you know financial barriers or, or whatever are or, or priorities or just prejudice. We want those things removed. Do that. Let your heart be prepared and equipped to minister in all cultural contexts. Kind of get over yourself there and uh, know that the gospel transcends all that. The gospel transcends ethnicity. It transcends uh, uh, um, social context. It transcends uh, geographical context. It transcends all of that. 
So just kind of get over yourself there. I mean, if, if you're just that, if you become that soft of an American that you can't go to other parts of the world because you can't stand the mosquito bites, just get over yourself. If that's what God's calling you, deal with it. Whether that's for short term or longer. And know this. God is no respecter of persons. So if you are a respecter of persons in any way, then you think you know more than God knows. So again, get over yourself. God's no respecter of persons. We must seek his heart to remove our prejudice that we might minister freely and sweetly in his name wherever he calls us to. So take your cue from Peter and trust the Lord to do the same in your life that we see him doing in Peter's here. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you for um, this text that you have laid out for us this morning. We ask that you would take it and that you would... uh, knit it into the very depths of our soul, that you would uh, that you administer it sweetly into the very affections of our hearts, that we might know you more fully, that we might worship you well, that we might hide ourselves in you and treasure you, and that we might make ourselves available for what you were calling us to do in any given context. Thank you for um, the sweet picture of, of Dorcas that you give us to remind us once again of the glory of the appeal of feminine godliness that you lavish upon us throughout your word that um, we may hold it rightly in a context that is so abusive to women, a context that our immediate context, our current cultural climate that is, that is tugging at young women to act like men, to, to pull them away from all of the, of the intuitions that you knit so sweetly in them as women and to, we look back and wonder why are young ladies so miserable in our culture? And the culture is stealing them away and leading them off into a a sad and sickening path and trying to turn themselves into um, aggressive, self-righteous, self-absorbed, man-like beings. And we ask that you would help us um, to stand against that with all that we are and all that we have in Christ and nurture our young women as we should, that they may flourish and find great joy in their femininity. We ask all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.